Welcome once again, everyone, to a Baseball America podcast. Along with J.J. Cooper, I'm John Manuel. Thanks so much for the download, uh, 2009. I think it's our our second podcast of 2009, our first professional podcast, our first pro ball podcast. Uh, I know Aaron Fitt and I will be back next on Tuesday the 20th with our top, top 25. 25 college podcast. Much anticipated, never duplicated. Uh, but J.J. and I are here to pick back up on the top 10 prospect uh, podcast Talking a little National League East, we'll talk National League Central and National League West in the next couple of weeks leading up to the unveiling of our top 100 prospects, which will come in mid-February. But, J.J., uh, let's talk National League East. Uh, I happen to do one of these top 10s, and I think the way we've been doing these, just to kind of jump in straight into the discussing the top 10 of that uh, organization and talk a little bit about which one we think is the best top 10. I think you and I are, are kind of united on which ones we think are best in this division, uh, which is kind of funny because when we did our, our org rankings, which will be released later this spring, but also are in our prospect handbook, I know you had one of the organizations you did ahead of the yes. other, and that that order was flipped by yes. <laughs> when Will Lingo, Jim Callis, and I banged out the, the org rankings, which I think is kind of funny that we didn't listen to you <laughs> on that. But it's funny uh, in, in a weird sort of way. I think I was with you on that uh, yeah, I think After you, I realized how the rankings came out, I said, like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> that's not how J.J. has them. But, you know, but that's uh, – and it always – I mean, when you are ranking organizations, part of it is is that there's always that balance of, okay, impact talent versus depth. depth right. And likelihood, and you know, close kind of to the – how close are they to the big leagues versus, you know – Upside. Upside. All there's all those there, – there are a lot of, you know, factors that kind of go into it. And so, you know – a lot of times we disagree, you know. Right. We, we're there's never just, unanimous on any of these. There's lots of room for difference of opinion on any of these kind of things. All this pro- any prospect ranking is <laughs> subjective. There's no right answer, I guess, is the way that Jim likes to put this. There's no right or wrong answers. There are more defensible and less defensible answers. I think the, it's pretty uh, difficult to conclude otherwise that the other than the, the Marlins had the best farm system in the National League East. I think the Braves are nipping at their heels and at the top. I think the Braves are very competitive with any organization with a one-two punch of Tommy Hansen and Jason Hayward. But, boy, for me, it's pretty hard to beat the Marlins for a stable of impact bats, J.J. Right now, for my money, this is the best organization in the game for hitters. I don't think anyone else, even Texas and Oakland, actually comes close to the impact bats the Marlins have. What we're looking at, the Marlins, you got Cameron Mabin, number one, Mike Stanton, number two, Logan Morrison, number three, you know, I was talking about hitters. Matt Dominguez, number six. Kyle Skipworth, number seven. Gabby Sanchez, number eight. Chris Coughlin, number nine. That's the thing that jumps out. And as as good as one, two, three is there, I think we talked about this when this came out, was Kyle Skipworth, seven. Right, right. That's really where it just kind of sinks into me how impressive this list as far as bats is, is that, you know, first-round pick from last year who – we like. I mean, oh yeah, no, absolutely. He didn't have a great GCL debut, but he did hit for power, which most high school hitters don't do when they first go to the Gulf Coast League. And he he did hit with power there. I mean, he hit five home runs and and 159 at bats. And, that, that's not bad. And, and number six is Matt Dominguez. You know, basically former first round pick from 2007. Who, oh yeah, who hit. And I know Greensboro. Sure. You look at the ball in Greensboro, and it you know it, it starts taking off to the wall, but. That being said, a very good season, you know, for Dominguez in his first full, pro, you know, full pro season. And he's a guy who, where the defense has always been ahead of the offense for him, and that's not a knock on the offense. It's just that he's a special defender at third base. 
Uh, I had a couple of scouts tell me they think, you know, this is a Travis Fryman kind of player, a guy who's going to be a really good defender, and he's going to have some strikeouts, and he's going to have some some inconsistency in his offensive game, some streaks, but he's going to hit for power, and he's going to be a productive offensive player. He's not going to be maybe a star, but a guy who's going to be, I think he's a great six-hole, future six-hole hitter, five-hole hitter in the right year, but a guy who's a potential gold glover at third base. I mean, he's a... Really, the most comparable player to him is Ryan Zimmerman in the big leagues right now. You know, who's out of place being a three-hole hitter in, in Washington, just three-hole hitter for lack of anybody else being there. Right. But, but that's their sixth prospect. I mean, that's a that's and and, and their fourth best hitter, like you said. And, and you know, you really the interesting thing also is is that Maven Stanton Morrison one two three. That's a one, two, three where you could make your argument if you wanted for number three being number one. Absolutely. Yeah, Logan Morrison's t- going to be a top 25 guy in our top 100. I don't think there's a question about it. Um, I'm not sure where he'll be in that top 25, but he's in the top 25 or 30 guys in, in, in baseball and in the, probably in the top 15 in terms of hitters, just hitters in the minor leagues. He's every bit the prospect for me that Lars Anderson is with the Red Sox. And Lars Anderson was number one for a team that you think of as a really good farm system in Boston. And Logan Morrison's three here. And, and honestly, J.J., when I look at the Marlins, I, you know, I, I think I've talked about it on the podcast, I have talked to scouts who like Mike Stanton better than Cam Mabin. Oh, yeah. Mike oh, Stanton, can, in terms of upside, Mike Stanton is as good as any hitter in the minor leagues with the exception of Matt Wieters. I, I just, just in terms of upside. I mean, this is a special bat. Uh, special power to see athletic ability and power on display like this. A guy whose home road splits were not. I mean, Matt Dominguez was really buoyed by Greensboro. Mike Stanton was helped by it, but he was equally impressive on the road as he was at home. The only caveat with this guy, statistically speaking, is the strikeout numbers and the strikeout but, rate. And the thing with that is, is that you, you do have to have some concern. But you were also talking about a guy who hit. 39 homers yeah. in low A. That yeah. doesn't, that doesn't, doesn't happen. happen. No, it doesn't happen. I mean, Ben Badler actually did a really interesting, I don't know if I'd call it a study. He started uh, aggregating the data for a study on, okay, let's find some low A hitters uh, who had a strikeout rate comparable to Mike Stanton. And the guys that he found who've made it are guys like Russ Branion and some other guys who were very inconsistent big league hitters who struck out a lot, but none of those guys came close to hitting the 39 home runs. Right, and Russ Mike Brandon, did. Russ Brandon needed two years to get out of low A. Right, and also and also Russ Brannion is a guy who doesn't have the athletic ability to make the adjustments. The thing that makes me most encouraged about Mike Stanton is the improvement he showed first half to second half. It was about an 18 to 80 some strikeout to walk ratio in the uh, walk to strikeout ratio in the first half, and it was about 42-67 in the second half. He really got a lot better. Certainly, he got pitched around and pitched to a lot more carefully as but, word got around the league. Hey, if you make a mistake around the strike zone, this guy crushes it. But he did cut down his strikeout also, rate. While he got pitched around, if you aren't making that adjustment, that just means your strikeouts go up. Correct. I mean, or, or that you're less effective. You're right. swinging at balls. So he was uh, – I love the athleticism and I love the adjustments that this guy made. And uh, the Marlins – are as high upside. Plus, they also have guys who've done it at the double-A level, I guess is the other thing that, that makes me so encouraged about the Marlins system. Sean West did it in high-A, then he went to the fall league and performed in the fall league. Ryan Tucker really dominated in double-A. I think he's a bullpen guy. You know, Jose Sater's another guy who's gone to double-A they got from the from the Cubs. Bullpen guy, but if you're going to be a bullpen was, guy, be a guy with a dominant arm. That was a, I mean, it, yeah. if you're the Marlins fan, you've got to, you know, if you're the Marlins fan out there, <laughs> 
Yeah, you have to be happy with that trade. I'm not sure how you say tee-hee-hee in Espanol, <laughs> but that's what I'd be saying if I were a Marlin fan. And then, again, you have double-A hitters like Gabby Sanchez and Chris Coughlin, who I think are guys who are ready to help in the big leagues. I think Gabby, Gabby Sanchez has a great chance to be their everyday first baseman next year, and I think he can hit. I don't think he'll hit for profile power at first base in terms of home runs, but he'll be a productive offensive player, and he'll probably be a much better defender than Mike Jacobs. Uh, and that's a net win for the Marlins there too. So uh, to me, the Marlins are a team that's positioned to contend in 2009 and beyond. Uh, I think they'll be a, a much more competitive team than people think in 2009 in the National League. They're, they're a sleeper there, and I think they're, they're very positioned to have another one of those seasons <laughs> that they've had. I don't know if they're going to win another World Series, but this is the Marlins' history, and they're, they're back on the upswing. Uh, uh, so Contrast that, I think, with Atlanta, which lost 90 games last year. And while there is help coming on their farm system, uh, J.J., I guess we should really start the Atlanta discussion with they'd be one with a bullet if they hadn't made that Mark Teixeira trade, don't you think? Oh, yeah. How crazy would that farm system be if they had Naftali not traded Feliz. Elvis Andrus, Naftali Feliz? Matt Harrison probably would have been exhausted in the big leagues for them last year, too. Salt I, I forgot about Salta Holy cow. And Bo Jones, who's that's, not insignificant. No, that's – that's that's the I mean if you if you want to say where the, the the Rangers went to being an elite farm system that day it pretty much kind of turned I mean that really is a Herschel Walker kind of trade it <laughs> I mean especially when you look at it it's like I mean there's no other way to put it Atlanta misjudged the talent the rest of the talenting it's not like Mark Teixeira right didn't do for that year roughly that he what was in Atlanta what they asked him to do but. And the reality of it is, is they did not get. If you look at what they got back for him a year, you know, yeah, Kochman and Steven Merrick. That's yoiks in a way. That's not a comparable. You know, it's not even close to comparable. And they threw in at least one too many pieces to Texas. At least one. <laughs> so. But uh, now that being said, you know, and I think there's some help. You know, as far as on the you know in the Braves farm system, there are some guys who are going to help. You know, this year at some point, but. We were talking about this actually before we started the podcast. I do believe that the Braves will be better this year. It's not hard to be better than seventy-two you know, and ninety. <laughs> yes, than seventy-two and ninety. Doesn't mean they're going to be a contender, but they had so many bad starts last year. You know, right. pitching. They, we looked it up, and it's it was over. like eighty-plus starts that were made by guys who really had no business being in the big leagues or in a big league rotation. I mean, like I know JoJo Reyes and Charlie Morton had had minor league success and were quote-unquote ready, but they were awful in and, the majors last year. And if you had enough, if you had options, it's one of those things where you find out after three starts, okay, right. you know what, JoJo Reyes, we're going to send him back down. Exactly. He's not ready. Or then you had injured Mike Hampton or injured Tom Glavin, who just were never right last year. So all they, I mean, if you just take those half your starts that were, you know, yeah. basically games where they were almost out of it before it began. Well, there's pretty much like, well, we have no better option, so this is who we have to pitch as opposed to who we really want to pitch. If you can, if you could just replace that with, you know, what we're going to see with Derek Lowe and Javier, Javier Vasquez. And, you know, and also those are guys who can be more counted on than last year's, you know, 40-year-olds mm -hmm. plus rotation yeah. that, well, yeah, these Glavin's, guys we think will make it to the end of the season. Glavin, Smoltz, Hampton, I mean, to expect more than 45 starts out of those guys – would have been way optimistic, and I think they ended up making 31 starts between the three of them. Now, of course, Atlanta's had this offseason of you know, losing John Smoltz, the whole Rafael Furcal drama, not trading for uh, Jake Peavy when everyone thought they would. I would rather keep my prospects and pay Derek Lowe oh, yeah. than trade for Derek Peavy, per I mean Jake Peavy personally, 
and I'd rather have Derek Lowe, even at 460, than A.J. Burnett at 5 and 80 oh, yeah. myself. No, I, I, the funny thing even is if they did overpay Derek Lowe, which it sounds like the, the consensus is, yeah, they probably did. They probably did, but you know what? This is the first time the Braves have overpaid for someone in free agency in, in how long? Yeah, it's been. I mean, oh, uh, when's the last big Braves free agent signing? I mean, seriously, I can't even think about. I can't think of one. I mean, two thousand since two thousand two, two thousand three, they've really been running a shoestring. Right. So, so this is you know you're talking so, about eighty five million dollar payrolls, which is not a shoestring necessarily, but when it's all being eaten up by Smoltz, Chipper Jones, Andrew Jones before that, Mike Hampton, and Mike, and Mike Hampton, right? And this is the Marlins stop. That's the Rockies stop paying for him. You know, but but you look at now. Looking at the the Braves' top ten, I mean Tommy Hansen, Jason Hayward, one two, not really much to argue there. I mean, did Tommy Hansen's scouting report not just blow you away? Oh yeah. I mean, it really. I mean, I, I, I've been a Tommy Hansen guy since he was at Riverside Community College. I love that guy. I love him as a prospect. He's always been a fastball command guy. JJ. I mean, he's right up my alley. But uh, this guy's a fastball command guy, and then you start reading about it, and it's low to mid-90s. And then he added a hard slider, bringing about comparisons to John Smoltz. That's like, go back to our best tool survey I did in 2007. John Smoltz has won best slider like 10 to 15 times in his career. It's ridiculous. That's basically comparing it to the best slider in baseball. That's exactly what you're doing. And then overhand curveball is a plus pitch. That was always an average pitch in, in, in junior college that's made progress. That's plausible. Uh, this is a four-pitch guy, a four-plus-pitch guy. And, four average-to-plus pitches for, with durability, size, and fastball command. And and he's done it at upper levels right. and he's shown results. And the thing is, he was number two in September. And then he just had about as good as the Arizona Fall League as a player can have, hitter or pitcher. In that kind of an offensive environment, for him to finish the season with showing the quality of stuff he showed, to dominate that, that caliber of competition and that hitting environment the way he did – I don't think we can ignore it, and he you vaulted would, you, to number one. When he was in the Arizona Fall League, you would have thought that for that one day they were actually bringing out the AZL, and it was the that's AZL right. hitters faced him, <laughs> and then they brought everyone else back out afterwards. Because I mean, that's awesome. That's a great way to put it. I, I think the Braves system is incredibly strong. I like their top ten quite a bit. I love Cole Rohrball, one of my personal cheese balls. Western Nevada represent. I'm a Chris Medlin fan. I've been, although I do still think. I know he struggled, then they had success, so they moved him to the rotation. He's still a middle, He's still, middle guy for me. He might be a closer. He might be the Braves' be, feature closer. But that, he might that be a closer ball, in 2009. That curveball <laughs> is uh, it, it, it's special. It is a special curveball. And, uh, you know, Tom Batista actually signed both Medlin and Tommy Hansen out of California Junior College. So that explains to you why Tom Batista is now a cross-checker, not an area guy. He's gotten promoted because he's done a nice job. Those are two nice finds. Now, that being said, I mean – the Braves system, you know, we, there's always that kind of that reputation. The Braves always produce, you know, talent. Yep. They need this group to produce because, for one thing, I mean, hey, uh, if you've produced McCann recently, you can't, you know, fault them for not producing anything. Right. And but, Kelly Johnson. And Kelly Johnson. But. You know, Escobar. This is not a, you know, but this is not a farm system that has produced the has managed to keep up with the level of stars that you know they've lost. I agree. I think the main thing is that they have really fallen off in terms of developing pitching, and I th- that's why I think Tommy Hansen, Cole Rohrbaugh, Chris Medlin, uh, Jeff Locke, these guys are crucial to the future of the Braves. The reason the Braves had to rely so much on Hampton and Matt, uh, Smoltz and Clavin the last couple of years is they didn't have any other choice. The, the homegrown pitchers they had developed uh, had stopped becoming – uh, Jason Schmidt or Kevin Millwood, or you know, they become Kyle Davies, or they become Chuck Joe James Joe or JoJo Reyes or Charlie Morton, and 
Those guys just weren't cutting it. Uh, Matt Belial. I mean, those are these are the guys in the last decade the Braves have staked a lot of money on and staked a lot of high draft picks on, and they haven't turned out. So uh, it's probably better. They Now their guys are lower round draft picks. But I think it is amazing that you look at their pitching in their top ten, and the only guys who aren't junior college guys, there's, there's six of them in the top ten, Kimbrell, Medlin, Warbaugh, Hanson, all JUCO guys. The other two guys are Locke High School and Tehran uh, International. The Braves are one team that is going to be at least have to. I'm not say hurt, but has to have, have to have changed the way they do things because of the change in the draft and, and follow. And the thing, the crazy thing, JJ is they've tried to turn it to their advantage. They just are scouting junior colleges heavier than ever. And uh, the way that Roy, Roy Clark explained it to me, we wrote about it in the draft uh, pre-draft report cards. Uh, now that everyone is available at the junior college level, the Braves are scouting junior colleges as heavy as anything. They are the number one team in terms of scouting junior colleges, and it's so hard to sign high school players now. The Braves really would like to sign high school p- players, but it costs so much money to buy those guys out of college these days. The Braves would rather go to the JUCO guys. Guys are motivated to sign. Maybe they, academically, college is not necessarily for them. They go to junior college because they're not necessarily to ride that bus out of high school. Uh, and they may don't. They go to junior college and go. You know, I like playing baseball and not going to class that much. You and know what? That's and where also, they want to If they want to pay me to do it, I wouldn't mind that either. So I think the Braves are tr- trying to figure things out. Uh, it's the Baseball America podcast. He's JJ. I'm John. Let's take a quick uh, break and answer a podcast email at podcast at baseballamerica dot com. Uh, we haven't been answering these as much, so we haven't been getting as many questions recently. But we are, uh, again, going to start that up in here in 2009, uh, our New Year's resolution, as it was last year. So podcast at baseballamerica.com is the email address. Brian, our Brooklyn Sosh fan and Red Sox fan, asked JJ, uh, we mentioned Jared Saltalamakia. What are the chances, he basically says, of uh, you know, Texas' demands seem high uh, in this possible Boston-Texas catcher-for-pitcher swap? Uh, but what do you think a fair deal would be for Boston for either a Taylor Teagarden or Jared Saltalamakia? Uh, what do you think? What talent should go back to Texas from Boston? Uh, should it be a Clay Buckholtz or two of the three out of the Justin Masterson, Nick Hagedone, Michael Bowden trio? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that, especially in light of Boston uh, shopping at the bargain veteran bin with uh, Brad Penny and John Smoltz? Do you think that makes it more likely that Boston will make that, that kind of deal? I think it's actually. I, I still. I just don't think this deal is going to happen. I, I think, you know, I looking at it. I just think that if it was going to happen, it would probably have happened by now. I agree. There's I no real reason. There's no impetus that's going to push either side. Like, what's going to happen for the Rangers? That's going to push them to trade. You know, maybe you know you go to spring training and okay. You know, I, I really can't even think of a scenario. Right. As far, as far as the Red Sox. Now, there's not a whole lot of margin of error this year because it's not something where you can say, okay, well, we'll figure it out in June because you are in a division where there's two other teams. There's only two who are going to get out of there. Right, and they don't have a catcher right now. Right. I mean, they really don't have a big league catcher with Jason Veritek still but, unsigned. But if you're looking at it, you know, Veritek's still out there, and we're just kind of in a situation where he doesn't really have many other options. Yeah, he's more valuable. Clearly, he has more value to Boston than he has to any other organization. And yet, Boston does not want to pay him what he wants to get paid. And, and the reality of this is that I still think that Boston probably holds more of the cards in this situation than he does because, you know, he doesn't, I, I don't see another, no one else is going to, especially 
The Red Sox are the only team who doesn't have to give up a, a draft pick to sign them. Right. That's the huge, huge factor uh, when you're talking about. Uh, and the Red Jason Sox Veritek. are the only team that, you know, that has that connection where your fans, you know, have that same, you know, that loyalty to, you know, Veritek also. I mean, that's. Yeah. He's worth more in Boston. And his intangibles play up in Boston because he knows the team. He's the leader. He wears the seat. He knows the pitchers. That's more. That has more value in Boston than it would if he went to a new team with different pitchers. So, but, I mean, right now Josh Bard is there a big league catcher, and that's you know if they want. I, I don't think Boston wants to go into the season with Josh Bard as their catcher. But, I think they're willing to do it instead of you know giving up, uh, selling low on a Clay Buckholtz. And the thing about this is that you, I do think you can go into the season though with a Josh Bard, you know, especially in a lineup that going to produce offense otherwise. I mean, finding a catcher who can catch it and throw it and bat eighth or ninth right. is is easier than finding a guy, you know, who can bat in the middle line for anything like that. Sure. And once the season gets going, we've seen that all of a sudden catchers do become more available. I mean, like yeah, last absolutely. year, the Yankees needed a catcher. And it's like, oh, you know, here, here's a Hall of Famer. Here's yeah. a Hall of Famer. <laughs> exactly. That so I don't see I just don't see the trade happening now. It really does also seem that Arizona is a better trade partner. That there's obviously a high level of familiarity between Theo Epstein and Josh Burns, uh, Miguel Montero. He's not at the level of the Texas catchers, but he is more established as a big leaguer. That you can evaluate him as a big leaguer. You have scouting reports from him catching big league pitching, handling big league pitching staffs, hitting big league pitching, as opposed to really more speculation. Yeah, Jared Saltalamaki had a great winter ball, but, but Miguel Montero has produced as a major league player. It's a big difference. And with both of the Rangers guys that we're talking about, there are questions on either side. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Taylor so, Teagarden's uh, consistency offensively is. You know, yeah, I mean, Taylor Teagarden is like, okay, that is the catch and throw guy, and we don't know what he's going to hit like. Right. And then you go. And he's a rookie catch and throw rookie guy. Rookie catch and throw guy. And then you go on the other hand, you've got Salton Lamakia, and it's kind of more of the questions of, okay, well, how about this catching and throwing? Yeah, exactly. Now, to me, uh, Arizona's a better trade partner. Brian, we appreciate the email. But uh, the, the obviously an interesting, very interesting uh, off season in Boston and in Texas, uh, where the Rangers uh, have a lot of talent. But boy, there's some. <laughs> you, 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 I think that they wish they handled the Michael Young situation a little bit better. So it's the Baseball America podcast. I'm John Manuel, joined by JJ Cooper and JJ. Who's our number three organization in terms of just farms and some talent? In the National League East right now, after Florida, Atlanta, got to go with the the Phillies and the defending World me, Series champion defending Philadelphia World Phillies. Champion Phillies. And let me say, I do think that there's if you're if you're graphing this or if you're mapping this, you know, if the Marlins are at a hundred and the Braves are say at ninety, I mean, I think there's a, a there's a little gap there before yeah, you get to the Phillies. I, mean, I think the Phillies are I, I actually and the Braves are right about where the gap starts for the whole industry. In my mind, the top seven organizations are very separate from numbers 8 through 25. And then there's a pretty there's a chasm at the bottom too. And I don't want to give everything away, but like for me uh no, starting around number 26 say, without giving too much away, you know, if you if you're an Astros fan, you probably are aware that if you're an Astros, Padres, system. Tigers or Cubs fan, I think and we get the email from the Cubs, we know Cubs fans know their system is in dire need of talent. And that's, you know, uh, even tra- like trading Mark DeRosa, I didn't like that trade for the Cubs, but they kind of needed some minor league pitching depth. I don't know how much Chris Archer, John Gobb, and uh, Jeff Stevens helped them, but 
they kind of needed some arms just to have some arms after, so, two, especially after trading Jose Seda. But but so, we digress. But with the Phillies, Dominic Brown number one, who's kind of your definition of your a ways away but high upside guy, right? Uh, Carlos Carrasco too, who. You know, I, I know that there are some people out there going, Jesus, Carlos Carrasco, is he what now, 35? Because yeah, exactly. it does feel like that he's been, you know, but he's actually, you know. He's, he'll be 22 in March. He'll be 22 in March when, the, you know, basically he'll show up to spring training as a, you know, 21-year-old. Yeah, he pitched the entire season at AA and a smattering of AAA as a, as a 21-year-old. You know, the thing that jumps out with them is I think that, you know, you really, you know, Lou Marson, three, uh, Jason Donald, four. The thing they have is, is two, three, four are all guys who – you could see in Philadelphia at some point. Absolutely. All three know. of those guys have had success at upper levels of the minor leagues. I mean, Jason Donald, there was there were Jason Donald for De, for Delman Young rumors this offseason. I mean, that's crazy. That's crazy. Um, and it, uh, the thing is, I actually think that, that there, there was truth to that rumor because it made a lot of sense. Well, the thing for Donald is, is that what's difficult for the Phillies, now early on it makes sense for them, you know, okay, Hey, Chase Utley, you know, how long is he going to be out and all that to where, okay, you know, Jason Donald may fill that hole. Right, or Pedro Feliz also. Pedro Feliz right. had offseason hip surgery. He may fill that hole at third. But what's got to be frustrating for Donald and the Phillies, you know, or an opportunity maybe in a different way, is that his biggest strengths he doesn't get to use. I mean, he's a, he's a you know, a very impressive bat, you know, solid glove middle infielder. Right. And you just happen to be, oh, yeah, by the way, you're coming up and you're pretty much ready in an organization that has Chase Utley and Jimmy Rollins. Well, I think the Not thi- really vacancies there. Yeah, I think the big key for Jason Donald is will he be able to play third base if that's where the Phillies choose to play him? I, I, I think that's where he fits. I actually think he fits okay there. And it, I think he's going to end up having kind of a David Bell kind of career. Because the real thing, like coming into it, I think I felt like I almost maybe I had underrated Jason Donald in the Eastern League because I didn't put him in my top 20. When I rank prospects there, I say my, it's our top 20, obviously. But the vibe I got on him there was people saw him more as a utility guy and not a shortstop. And then I thought maybe I'd underestimated him a little bit. But then talking to the Phillies people and people, again, going through my reports from the Easter League outside the organization, no one believes that this guy's going to be a major league average shortstop defensively. In fact, most people think he's a below average shortstop, a 40 or a 45 big league shortstop. Because if you really think about it, the way one scout put it to me is there are very few average defenders at short playing short in the big leagues. There are a lot. Most guys are playing short. 55 or 60 is basically average for a big league shortstop, and he's there's no way he's that. So just grading him out, he's probably a 45, but that's even worse when you compare him. Like Jimmy Rollins is probably a 60 or 65 defender. Yeah, that'll be, on a side note, very interesting to see. Both Jimmy Rollins and Derek Jeter have committed to, to the World Baseball Classic. Will Jimmy Rollins play shortstop or will Derek Jeter? I mean, I got a feeling Derek Jeter ain't going to join that team to play DH. Right. I, 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 I figure that's for, And he's not going to say, you or know, let me try some center here, you know. And, uh, Grady Sizemore will be there. Yeah. But, anyway, but, I mean, that's going to be interesting to watch. But uh, I think Jason Donald is the perfect third baseman as long as they have Ryan Howard Ryan Howard, Ryan Howard, uh, Ryan Howard, Chase Utley, and Jimmy Rollins. And especially you don't Chase need Utley profile power. Your, Chase exactly. Utley is providing your third base offense at you, second base. You don't need profile power at third base when you have off the charts power at second base and at first base. So, but I mean, Kyle Drabeck, Michael Taylor, Travis Darno, I bet I guess it's actually pronounced Diarno, uh, Zach Collier, J. A. Hab, Jason Knapp 
happen nap at the back of the top I mean, ten. It's, the t- it's at, my Dr. Seuss back of the top ten. After you get to four, you know, it, there is a drop off there from the standpoint of Drebeck is impressed. You know, Drebeck's Yeah, see, I think it's after seven though. Five, six, and seven. Those are those are I interesting like, guys. No, and I like Michael Taylor a lot. I mean, like, actually, you know, I you know. It, they're, they're, you know, I have nothing to do with the Phillies rankings. Right. I love, I love Michael Taylor. I yeah, would, you no, know, I, I think I like Michael Taylor a lot. I don't think I'm down on Michael right. Taylor ranking him six. I just think he's done it once. Right. We'll see. <laughs> in, yeah. in 2008, the we'll first see. time he's really produced offensively, he had a great stretch at the end of his college career at Stanford. I always think I'm the high guy on Michael Taylor, but you know, to me. Uh, no, I, he, I think he has to be I can't remember to, where I ranked him in the Florida State League, but I think I definitely it was ranked high. The, no, absolutely, it was high. high guy on. And I know we ranked Michael Taylor over Dominic Brown in the South Atlantic League, for example. But I think Dominic Brown is a guy who the more scouts you have to talk to guys outside the organization to really uh, a and get a great that, read on Don Brown and B you are projecting. There's no doubt this is a projection pick on that his power will come through. And that's a good aside for just in general. We are going to have rankings that differ, right? Like, one thing to just explain is is when you're doing a league top 20, you're talking to scouts and all, but you really are kind of ranking them. You're projecting, but there's a lot of the context of the league they're in. And your your biggest sources there are the league managers. There's just no question right. about that. That is the number one source. And Dominic, the Saudi League, those teams hardly play each other. You're in little four little pods of four, and you play the other three teams in your division over and over and over again. So... It's a little bit of a different deal. To me, Dominic Brown's more athletic than Michael Taylor, better defensively than Michael Taylor. Even though Michael Taylor has a big arm, Dominic Brown's is better. Uh, Michael Taylor could play right field. Dominic Brown's a better right fielder, projected to be a better outfielder. Right fielder can play some center. Um, and I just believe a guy who already has a knack for hitting for average, for squaring up the ball, and for controlling the strike zone with his natural athleticism and, and gro- burgeoning strength, the power is going to be there. But uh, who knows? Maybe he turns out to be a more athletic, uh, you know, Sean Burroughs. I-, I could be wrong about projecting that much power on him. Okay. I-, I think, you know, we both agree the next team, and if we're talking, you know, the Phillies are, then there's another drop. And he, you know, but not a dramatic drop right. to the Mets. I agree. Yeah, I, I like the Mets system better than I thought I would. Uh, I did their top ten, their top thirty last year. I, I ranked the Phillies guys this year. I'm fairly familiar with the Mets uh, list. It was better before the trade they made with uh, the Mariners, but I'd still make that trade in a heartbeat again to get JJ Putz if I'm the Mets. Um, and obviously, and, and the, I guess the surprising thing to most people would be that Mike Carp was not the highest ranked guy they traded there. That it was uh, Michael Cleto the young right-hander with one of the better arms, really probably the, one of the best arms in the Mets system. But to me, my you know they've got the Mets have one of my new personal cheese balls in Brad Holt, the hard-throwing right-hander out of UC, uh, UNC Wilmington, uh, who just dominated at, at Brooklyn. Uh, but to me, that's a list that really falls off after four. I, Jeffrey Marte, maybe we we were a little conservative on Jeffrey Marte. But um, there's a reason to be conservative there in that you know, you're projecting a lot, but at the same time, he's number six. Right. And he's essentially had 150 at-bats in the GCL. So that's not... Well, there's a chance he might end up being better than Wilmer Flores if Wilmer Flores has to move out of the infield. Right. That he might be more valuable than Wilmer Flores. Right. There's a chance of that. And we have Flores at two. and um, But Flores has shown a much more... I think a bat that's ready to move on the fast track much more so than, than Marte's is. But, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, Reese Havens is at eight, you know, which... Uh, you know, as far as first-round picks, you know, from this year. Yeah, not so bad. I mean, he, he was picked ahead of Holt, and uh, as was Ike Davis, who didn't make Which the top ten. Which Ike did not make the top ten and had about as bad 
a pro debut. It wasn't Anthony Hewitt like. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> but as bad as close. I was gonna say, I was actually gonna throw a qualifier as as a pro debut as a college player, like as a high profile college player I could remember in a while. Yeah, I think that's a fair. That's a fair way. And to Anthony, put it. by the way, we didn't mention it with the Phillies first round pick Anthony Hewitt did not make the top ten, and that's not because no one from the this year's draft made the and top. And two 10. guys drafted behind him did, in Jason Knapp and, and Zach Anthony Collier. Hewitt. Now, coming out, you know, when he was drafted, the thought was is that hey, this is a high upside guy who right. who also could be a guy who never hits a he day. He never got able. Yeah. That's potential that he could never get able. I mean. I, I, Jim Callis and I actually had a really strong difference of opinion doing draft report cards. I love the Phillies draft. Jim's not as high on it. Um, the Phillies did spend money. They spent more than $6 million on their draft class, but and they had extra picks. I, I like a team that, when they have extra picks, takes chances on guys with upside, but they also got good college pitchers and a polished high school hitter in Zach Collier. And that's the thing. The Mets do not. The Mets were one of four clubs that never went over slot in the 2008 draft, and yet – I thought in Brad Holt and Reese Havens, they got some fines. And, and we'll see about Ike Davis. I'm, a, I'm an Ike Davis believer. Right, I mean, you know, let's but make boy, it clear. That, like that like, brutal debut. You know, no home runs. He, he, might, he, he, he could show up and go, okay, I've learned some things from that. You know, right. So not, not time to write him off by any stretch. But, yeah, that was a – But you also – the Mets also you, – you, you're going to look into the back, back of their top ten. Nick Evans, I think we think, is a platoon guy. And he could be a second division regular. But on a good team, he's a platoon guy. Eddie Coons on a good team is probably a seventh inning guy, and, and maybe that might even be not a whole lot of some impact scouts. on the back. Right, Reese Havens is probably a second baseman. You know, Bobby Parnell is number five. He's probably a bullpen guy, but he's that high because he's a bullpen guy who's ready, ready in two thousand and nine. So, and um, then I think we agree that if you're talking about drops, then there's another pretty significant drop. To get to the Nationals. I think so. I think it is a pretty significant drop. And, and the Nationals were a team that we ran into our top ten in terms of organizations last year. I think it was justified, although there was a lot of projection that was being done on a lot of young players. And in 2008, pretty much everyone in that system went backwards. Jordan but, Zimmerman. Jordan Zimmerman is the exception. Uh, but everyone Mike, else pretty much, if you were highly touted last year, you're a little less highly touted this year. I think that's a great way to put it. Um, Ross Detweiler is still number two, but he did not have a great year. Ross Chris Detler, Marrero is still number three. He got hurt, and he's moved, keeps moving down the defensive position Ross Detweiler, spectrum. I mean, for a guy who was a college guy in high A that's not by any stretch should be over his head, 289 average against. that That's the part that just concerns me a little bit is, is that he was know, hittable. He was hittable. Absolutely. Now, I've talked to at least a couple scouts who thought that his stuff came back in the fall, that he looked better in the Arizona Fall League, looked like a first-round pick. Uh, they didn't necessarily see him in the Carolina League. These are guys who just saw him in the Fall League for the first time. They both said, wow, I can see why that guy was drafted, where he was drafted. Um, but still, uh, he had mechanical issues to iron out. If you're going to be optimistic about him, you have to hope that he ironed out those issues, and it took him a little while to build up that new muscle memory, really, to adjust to those mechanics, be able to throw strikes with his new mechanics, throw less across his body, and be able to uh, both command stuff and have quality stuff. And, and the best way for me to explain, you know, beyond that is is that number five through ten are all guys who none of them have played an <laughs> at bat or thrown a pitch in full season ball. Yeah, that's that's damning. That's exactly that's exactly why they're number twenty one on our. Uh, whatever. In our Give rankings. it away more. No, it's, pit- it's pitiful. Well, they're number 21 in our preliminary rankings. I can't believe I just gave that away. That's why they're number five in the National League East. I, I, that's where I really should uh, should go with that. But yeah, I will say one th- again, if you're going to be optimistic as a Nats fan, uh, Aaron Fitt and I went to these clinics during the ABCA convention, and Don Slot Sluggo 
was showing a bunch of video of good swings and bad swings. And like he was showing good big league swings and showing a lot of messed up amateur swings. And he said, I don't want to just, you know, be negative about all the amateurs. So let's show you a good amateur swing. And you know whose video he used to break down? J.P. Ramirez, your number nine prospect for the Nationals. Showed him at the Area Code Games in 2007 with a swing that was balanced, that was uh, strong, that was uh, where he got the bat head through the zone for a long time. Uh, he didn't talk about the rest of Ramirez's tools, and that's the reason that he's number nine, and that's the reason he was a 15th-round pick, even though he signed for a million dollars. He might be a tweener in a lot of other ways, but he can hit, and Don Slott showed you visually why the guy could hit. It was pretty impressive to see him repeat the same swing, swing after swing after swing, even later in the weekend when he got tired. So that was a, that's a good encouraging sign for Nats fans. But, you know, Jack McGeary being a number five, when the guy's basically a, a part-time minor leaguer and he's your number five prospect, that's a problem. And, I, uh, and, uh, and that's Chris, the problem for the Nats. Chris Morero, number three. I mean, there's – what you know, what's your opinion – on, uh, on Chris Morero. You know, I mean, he's 20 years old and uh, hit 11 home runs in basically half a season in the Carolina League. That's hard. Uh, That's... I, I like I like Chris Morero personally. I, I think if you're going to hit, you're going to hit. And if you're playing first base, it's okay. I, you know, to me, he's like going to have a Paul Konerko kind of career. That's a comparable player for him where a guy's not going to be very athletic or very good defensively, but it's okay if he hits 40 home runs a year. That's worth yeah, it. Yeah, the bat's going to be – in so every the, so single all the values on the bat, and right now the evidence is that he will hit, but uh, he shouldn't be your number three prospect. It'd be great if he were number six through ten, somewhere in there. I mean, I, I guess a good way to put it, they're different players, but when we're talking to kind of to tie, put a bow on this, yeah. when we're talking about the Marlins, absolutely, and then you talk about, say, like Gabby Sanchez at number eight, different kind of players. Now, let me make this clear. I'm Very not saying, different players. But... With Gabby Sanchez, he's the number eight prospect, and really the a tough call. The power's the bat. I mean, the the you know the, the tool is the bat. The tool's yeah. the bat in a different way. He's not as much power, but you know a better hitter. I would rather have Chris Marrero than Gabby Sanchez, but that's a not tough a whole lot of difference though. And that's one's number eight, one's number three. Yeah, no doubt. That's a great point. Uh, that's a great way to that. That is a good way to put a bow on it. So we'll be back next week to talk National League Central. We could have a much longer podcast because JJ <laughs> did the Reds. Nobody loves Red pro- Reds prospects like uh, like JJ. Actually, Not I'll give a shout out. I was going to say I'll give a shout out to Doug Gray of RedsMinorLeagues.com. He may actually love them more. Okay, well, I'm not, even Ben in Centerville, Ohio, who uh, bombards the ESP, our weekly chat at ESPN, whether it's Jim or uh, I subbed for Jim this week, but bombards that with questions. I'll tell Ben one more time: no more Danny Dorn questions. It's been asked and answered, counselor. But uh, we'll be back next week to talk NL Central prospects. And we'll be back Monday with Aaron Fitt joining me here for the weekly college podcast where we unveil our uh, top 25 at BaseballAmerica.com. Until then, for JJ, I'm John. So long, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.